Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Good afternoon, Sharon. How are you? I'm doing good, Jeremy. I just want to know how you're doing in this quarantine with your wife and your kids at home. Well, I'm actually doing okay today. You know, it, it's uh, day by day. Sarah, you know, she does PRN 1099 work, and so she's been off now for about three weeks since they've canceled most of the surgeries. And, you know, she's been home, and the kids have been home. She's been homeschooling, and so when I was going to the office prior to last week, when I got home from work, she would hand the kids to me and say, I'm done. Well, now I'm here all day. And when I get done, she says, I'm done. So we're all uh, feeling our way through this. But for the most part, it's gone pretty smooth. So strange new world. Isn't it? though? Well, at least we're we're still able to do our podcast, though. That's right. Technology. I'll tell you what, if nothing else, this has shown us the power of technology throughout our economy. I know. Well, if uh, people who are listening to this hear little glitches, my internet is not the best, but we'll strive right through it. What is interesting, I talked to somebody with AT&T and they said that everything has flipped now. Used to their highest usage times were from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. And now it's flipped, and it's from 9, p- 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. now. Oh, and from 5 to 9, it's lighter. They assume that people just get so sick of being on the computer all day that come 5 o'clock, it's like I'm shutting that thing down now. <laughs> <laughs> I know that because if I'm working from home like I am today, and when I get done, I turn the lights off in my office here. I shut the door, and I don't come back in here because I know if I come back in here, I'm going to get sucked into it again so yeah yep. the rabbit hole i hear you yep. i hear you well let's uh we have some wonderful guests with us today and uh, we have i think a, a really good topic for our listeners here oh another one for our historical series and you know we get great feedback 
about these podcasts we're doing in the historical series. So I'm super excited about today. Yeah, I hear it from, you know, our our more seasoned CRNAs who like to hear this message again, but we're also hearing it from our listenership who is not quite as seasoned and the younger CRNAs out there who really enjoy hearing this stuff that maybe they didn't get as much of it in when they were in nurse anesthesia school as, uh, as they probably wanted to. So, but we're going to be talking about today, exactly. the story of nurse anesthesia education and accreditation. And we have two amazing guests with us today. We have Miss Betty Horton. Welcome, Betty. Hi, glad and, to be here. Yeah. And we have uh, Mike Kramer. Hi, Mike. Howdy. Yeah, so you guys have pretty impressive resumes. I'll kind of hit the highlights here for you, Betty. I mean, you served as COA Director in Accreditation from 1990 to 2002. You're also a Program Director, Teacher, and Practitioner. I think you're still a consultant to COA, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, also IFNA. So anything else you want to add to that? No, not really, but it seems that the older I get, the more interested I am in history, so I'm really anxious to share some of those stories today. <laughs> Wonderful. We're looking forward to hearing them. And, and Mike, you also, uh, you've been um, a CRNA practitioner, teacher, program director. Currently, you're a professor at Rush University. Gosh, you've, you've got uh, quite a storied background as well. Yeah, and uh, appreciate the uh, introduction, and I'm so grateful for 40 years in this field and having had a chance to do everything from open drop ether to running a high-tech simulation lab now. Wow, isn't it amazing? (laughs) Well, that's that's quite the transition, isn't it? From one end of the spectrum to the other. Mm Mm-hmm. Mike, we'll call you a wealth of knowledge uh, because you've seen the full transition of nurse anesthesia education and and, and even practice. So. Well, let's just jump right in here, Jeremy. What do you say? Sounds good to me. Um, yeah. So, Betty, why was there ever any interest in starting an approval process for the schools of nurse anesthesia? You know, that's something interesting that we were able to find uh, essentially evidence of as we did this research project, Mike and I, for the council. And it seems that it's pretty well known that nurses were giving anesthesia since the late 1800s, but there was a wide variety of how they learned. A lot of it was on-the-job training. We did find a few schools, I think there were four or five, that started very early in the 1900s. But uh, it just seemed to be the quality of education varied widely. And there was also a period of time when Agatha Hodgins, the founder, realized that this was a problem, that we needed to kind of standardize our accreditation or approval of school so that for patient safety, if nothing else. And also scholars or people that are interested in history know about the other issue that was going out on in the early part of that century, which were the legal challenges against nurse anesthetists saying that they shouldn't be giving anesthesia. One other thing about that that I realized when we were looking at this, Mike and I, that I hadn't was the environment they were living in. And of course, they were in the deep depression and physicians were looking at other ways to supplement some kind of income. And so they were looking at anesthesia. So that was kind of the basis of the stimulus but Agatha realized that we had to 
get on the ball because of the quality of education and their challenges. So she certainly carried it through. Now, wasn't Helen Lamb's the mother of education? So Helen had a piece in that whole process too, did she not? She did, but she came in around in the 40s. So this was okay. This would have been, you know, a decade earlier. Right. He had a big, big uh, part of the approval process. Mike, I know that we were really impressed when we were looking through some of the archives documents that we could actually see documents signed by these people. I mean, there were actually the papers they were touching and signing it. Just really an impressive thing to go to the ANA archives. Didn't you feel that way, Mike? For sure. And, you know, having been an on-site reviewer was interesting to see that, you know, some of the kinds of questions that they were answering to verify and clarify what schools were doing back then were pretty similar to uh, questions that reviewers today deal with when it comes to resources, student learning opportunities, and control of the program. But it was very inspiring to see it in like Betty saying, the actual handwriting of some of our founders. Hey, Mike, what was really involved in, in planning an accreditation process, and who were some of the folks that were really leaders in this movement? Gertrude Fife at the 1934 annual meeting really uh, took the uh, lead, I think, from Agatha Hodgins and uh, some of the other founders and by 1937, I believe they had a list of 17 approved programs around the country. And the interesting thing back then is that approval, graduating from an approved program was tied to membership in uh, NANA and later AANA. So before we had our certification process in, in 1945, the thing that was valued about graduating from an approved program was being eligible to be a member of the AANA. So I I think for our younger uh, listeners, please remember what a privilege it is to be a member of an organization with such a strong history of advocacy and pushing forward educational standards. Absolutely. And we're still seeing that today, right? That is totally interesting. Too bad we can't go back to that and you have to be a member to be a CRNA. Right. <laughs> Agreed. Our membership numbers wouldn't be dropping now, would they? <laughs> no, no way. Uh. And that is really an interesting part of our history. Mike, do you remember we talked a bit about the challenge before these nurses, you know, our ancestors and in the profession, when they started, when Agatha and Gertrude started, they had no idea where the schools were. They wanted to prove them, but they didn't know where they were. And of course, some of them were just bringing up overnight just to fill need. So they did that survey and that's how they found uh, those 17 that they said were qualified to uh, have a &A membership. And they were very strategic in their thinking. I'm sorry, I I stepped on you there, Sharon, but I think aligning with the American Hospital Association, American College of Surgeons was a way of marshalling expertise from others and political support because, as Betty was saying, the doctors were looking for other ways, understandably looking for other ways to earn a living during the Depression. So 
and our, our meetings, our association meetings that were held in concert with the uh, AHA for a number of years, weren't they? Yes, yes, they were. Well, Betty, exactly when did we start approving nurse anesthesia schools and, and what was that process? And if you could go on and tell us a little bit more about has the way that we approve schools changed from the beginning? So give us the beginning and then how it's different now. Right. Well, Sharon, you know, there was really a struggle to get the approval of schools off the ground. They knew very early they wanted to do it, but there were just so many things that came in the way. Funding, lack of funding. The American Hospital Association had helped them and said that they should accredit their own programs, which made sense, but they didn't have any money to do it. And then there was the conflicts, you know, World War II came along, and that really kind of held it up. Although before, just before that, they had assembled an approval committee. And again, they would look at documents that would come in and see if they're qualified again for a membership. But it wasn't until 1952 that they really appointed what they call the Approval Schools Committee. And that was the predecessor of the Council on Accreditation. And that, they did a huge amount of work. I swear they couldn't be doing as much as the council does when it reviews the program now. I mean, we would see, Sharon, we would see on the record when Mike and I were doing this, that they might approve 108 schools or something like that. So it was, and do 16 or 17 or 18 on-site visits. So they did a lot of work, but it wasn't until 1955 that the U.S. Office of Education actually recognized them as an official agency. 1955, that's not been that long ago. No, no, not really. It really hasn't been at all. Wow, I did not know that either. Has it changed since then? You alluded to the amount of work then and now. So has the process changed much since 1955? Well, you know, as I look back at history, it's kind of interesting that the basic elements were there from the beginning. And again, that was because they sought external help. They went to the experts. They didn't just make it up themselves. So if you look at how it was structured, it was very akin to what other people were doing at the time. And now it's very formalized, primarily because of that thing that they did in 55, which was to get approval from the government. They did that. I don't know if you know, but they did that because they were trying to make themselves officially recognized so that people coming back from war, the soldiers, sailors, whoever they were, would be eligible for funds to go to school and they couldn't do that if there's ah. a credit agency wasn't recognized so that's how it started but today it is uh, very formal a lot of the things that i did as director of accreditation they do today is dictated by the government and private organizations so it's very formal but i've sat on several other boards of accreditors and i think they do it excellent job in nurse anesthesia. They're serious about what they do. And if you're an accredited program, I think they should be very proud of that. But you talked about funding at one point, and I know uh, being AANA past president, a large part of their funding comes from the AANA. Uh, So they don't have to worry about that piece anymore, hopefully. 
Well, way back when they started this, the members voted to take a part of the dues, just a few dollars. I don't remember. It was just a, I think the dues were like $20, and they took a portion of that that was dedicated, had to go to the schools. So that they had to go to the approval process. And council has never gotten big enough to support itself and still you know, abide by all of the regulations they have to abide by. So they still rely on an unrestricted grant from the ANA to exist. Programs pay, but it still takes money from the professional organization. It's a very good alliance, and it still meets the requirements that you don't have to be, you shouldn't be too close to the professional organization. They see that as a conflict of interest, but it works well. Hey, Mike, how, how have the requirements or standards, I guess, uh, for education of, of SRNAs, CRNAs changed over the years? And if you can just talk a little bit about maybe the impact they've had on education and practice, obviously going, I believe a certificate was the first degree awarded, correct? That's right. And in the 30s, uh, we had four-month programs that still had some required didactic and, and clinical requirements. And then, uh, you know, the program length uh, ramped up to uh, six months, uh, 12 months, and 18 months. And the change in degree requirements, I, I remember hearing John Gard describe a lively assembly of school faculty back in the 70s, where a program director was up at the microphone and said, it would be the ruination of this profession if program directors were required to have a baccalaureate degree, and it was less than 10 years after that, that our entry to practice moved from certificate to bachelor's, even though the requirement moved, uh, even though programs had already, many had made that move. And then by 1998, we had the uh, master's as the uh, requirement, even though there were programs that had already chosen to move to the master's level. And of course, now by 2022, we're mandated to uh, offer a practice doctorate for uh, entry to practice. And we were the first advanced practice specialty to do that, even though there was significant pressure from the American Association of Colleges of Nursing for all advanced practice to move to the uh, DNP by uh, 2015. There we were the group, I think, that studied it the most rigorously and decided that, well, if that's the way education and practice are, are moving, then we'll do it. But as uh, Sandy Marie said, we will chart our own course and, and sail our own ship. And that was what we ended up doing. Hey, Mike, along the way, have, have nurse anesthetists kind of led in the nursing arena, would you say? I would. I'm biased, but I, I think so, uh, Jeremy, because even though nursing has an incredible, strong history going back hundreds of years, I think the whole idea of knowing your value and being reimbursed for your services and having direct reimbursement under uh, Medicare Part B, you know, on the practice and regulatory side was important, but I think we took the bull by the horns also in terms of standardizing our education and uh, accreditation the way we did. And 
the uh, National League for Nursing, I, I think, started accrediting uh, schools of nursing in the late 30s. But as, as far as the specialties go, like Betty was saying, it was in the 50s that we were the first specialty group in nursing to have that. And then it was 30 years later in the early 80s that the midwives then had their own process that was also federally recognized. Interesting. We've always led. I like that. But, you know, you brought up up another point, Mike. It was this whole DMP process was driven by the American College of Nursing. It wasn't internally driven from us. And our members sometimes do not realize that. But, you know, we jumped on the train whenever this came out and everybody else dropped off, they all jumped off the train and we stayed on it all the way to the station. <laughs> and we had representation for sure uh, with the AACN task forces that were, were meeting and that was great, but they had an executive director named Polly Bednash, who was a master marketer and really made it sound like you know, there there was no stopping this movement. And even Ed Thompson, who was our representative with the uh, AACN and a very strong uh, representative for nurse anesthesia with that group. But I remember, you know, in his slide deck, when he would be presenting on this, he had an image of you know, the, the train leaving the station. But it's interesting how the other specialty organizations in nursing held back a bit. Well, Betty, you talked just a moment ago about seeking external approval for our accreditation, and you alluded to the part of how it started after World War II so that you could get funding, I guess, to be able to go back to school when the GIs and everybody was coming back. Is there another reason why we would have sought external approval for our accreditation? Well, I think, of course, just to validate that what we were doing is right. But soon after we did that, there were challenges to our right to credit. And one thing about nurse anesthetists, it seems like we're strong people. <laughs> you know, we don't want to give up what we've got, and we do hang in there. But there was a challenge before the U.S. Department of Education there was the Office of Education at that time by an ad hoc committee of the ASA that wanted to essentially, in the documents we have read, to take over accreditation. There was a particular physician that was very, very much for that and actually went to the U.S. Department of Education and said that it was really an old boys network. You know, it was a professional organization, conflicts of interest. We didn't meet the new requirements to be an accreditor. And of course, the ANA, as soon as we heard about that, were right on it. And what happened was they realized that with the new requirements from the government, they had to make some changes. So Ira Gunn, bless her heart, she was always coming to our rescue, it seems like, at that period of time, was appointed as the consultant to create the councils. And she did that structure or teeth and separate, but yet part of the ANA. So that's how that started. And eventually, I was just talking to Michael Booth, who was chair of the Council on Accreditation 
the second chair, I think he came on and set, he was on it the whole time as education committee chair and then became chair of the council in uh, 77 after it was, they had that challenge in 75 by the ad hoc committee. And he said that he was really worried because they were giving him such a hard time, the first chair of Celestine Harrigan. So he decided along with the council that they were going to invite the doctors to the meeting. So what they did was invite the doctors to the meeting. And he said they came in and he started the meeting and he said, I've got to do something. So he started it with a prayer. So he made everybody pray. And then they went on and what they found out was the doctors, I think were kind of softened up by that. And they said, well, what we really want is for you to be autonomous from the professional organization. So they went to the board and asked for that autonomy and they did within a year were uh, granted enough autonomy. They have autonomy in everything except finances. They have to have autonomy in. So anyway, that's pretty much it was that challenge. And we've had other challenges, internal and external since that time, but that challenge really uh, was part of why the councils came about and why we and had to do with the U.S. Department of Education. Yeah, um, Mike, have there been other challenges throughout the accreditation history? I think that the you know challenge from organized medicine for sure is a big one. And I believe that you know, it's unfortunate in a way because we even did back in the 30s reach out to the uh, anesthesiologists. And back then they, they said that they weren't interested in helping train technicians or, you know, validating the training of technicians. So at least we got a little more traction with the surgeons. And then I think another challenge came when Bernice Baum, who uh, was associate director for many years and then executive director for a few years in the 70s, testified at a Senate committee in D.C. And this was before we had the kind of outcomes research that we've had for the last 10 or so years. And Ms. Baum said that our outcomes were comparable to those that the physicians achieved and that you know we really didn't need their involvement. Yeah. And having approval of our education. So that ignited a firestorm as well. I would say the most recent challenges that I'm aware of, at least, have been more internal because going back many years, as Betty indicated, and throughout the years since council has existed, there have been efforts made to examine financial self-sufficiency. And there really isn't a way to do that without becoming cost prohibitive to our programs. But as a council member myself in the sort of, I would say, well, it was the 2010 to 2012 era when we were defunded in terms of the aa &E grant, that was extraordinarily challenging. And we, at the same time, were unable to get financial reports from AANA because of turnover in the finance area, but we persevered and we uh, engaged with consultants and we worked really hard to determine how we could work more efficiently and how we could better communicate our value to our members. And I, I think with a lot of help, we were successful in doing that. Yeah. Now, I have a question real quick. And 
members ask about this a lot. There's an anesthesiologist that serves on the COA. Now, I know that his wife is a CRNA, but wasn't that mandated during the challenge back in the 70s from the ASA that an anesthesiologist serves on there? Or am I mistaken? Yeah, I can address that. Part of the structure of the council and what the another thing that the anesthesiologists wanted that I didn't mention was they wanted equal representation on the council. If they couldn't have their own group and they did try, I mean, they had a, started a faculty of nurse anesthesia, whatever, FNAS. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was a brand new program director when that started in the 70s and I got a call from an anesthesiologist in Chicago, well-known, that was organizing this group, and he wanted me to be part of it. Well, I was naive, and I thought, I'll think about it and call you back. Well, by the time I talked with people, I called him back, or he called me, I can't recall, and I said, no, I'm not interested. And I remember he was kind of huffy about that. But anyway, that was part of their trying to uh, challenge us, so they were challenging us, but they settled for equal representation on the council which they didn't quite get equal, but they got three, I believe it was anesthesiologist seats, maybe four. And over the years that has declined. To my knowledge, have they added one to the council? Because they were all, the last one, actually the last, there were three when I became director in 1990. And by the time I left, we didn't have any. We did have some on-site visitors, but even the doctors supported not being on it. They said, well, it was our council, we should have it. But that's how it happened, that we had doctors on the council. They weren't involved before. Hey, so hey Mike, three, for a minute, I want to go back four? to... Yeah. Hey, Mike, for a minute, I want to go back to something you alluded to earlier with some of the challenges. You know, from what I've heard from Sandy and Betty Petrie and a lot of people who've been around the industry for a long time was... Your physician colleagues basically tried to shut the schools down at a certain point. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are younger and might not even know about that part of the history. And I just think if we don't understand history, we're doomed to repeat it. So can we talk yes. about that and maybe how how has that process changed to where the physician colleagues might not have as much power as they did back then? Great question. And I think somebody who we alluded to earlier, uh, John Adriani from uh, New Orleans was somebody who had been a pretty strong supporter of nurse anesthetists and nurse anesthesia education. And then I think as councils formed and as we, uh, as efforts started, I think even back in the 70s to move toward direct reimbursement under uh, Medicare Part B, that control issue became more pronounced as we were really becoming and became bona fide economic competitors with our physician counterparts. So it's probably not coincidental that the formation of the uh, anesthesiologist assistant programs then started taking off in the 70s and, you know, didn't gain as much market share, uh, still haven't gained the amount of market share that some thought they would. But I believe a lot of that 
tension is based on the economic factor and us being direct economic competitors. I completely agree with you, Mike. <laughs> Coming from my background and just kind of seeing it, you know, this whole fight obviously boils down to money and, you know, we all know that. And I think the quality of care that a CRNA administers compared to a physician colleague has been, it's been shown over and over that there literally is no difference in most cases anyway. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I just... I look at this and, you know, again, history does tend to repeat itself. And I was just making sure that there were some safeguards in place that this potentially might not be able to happen again. I know that they control some of what the students are doing, and I know that they wield that control whenever needed. But I was hoping that it had changed where it wasn't quite as much. Well, they don't understand that if they cut their own nose off, they might have to be sitting on a stool. And we all know that they're not particularly in most of them are not particularly interested in that so <laughs> but they don't have a jeremy like you to see the big picture for them sometimes <laughs> so betty let's go back and we've talked about the history just a little bit why don't you just tell us what's the status of nurse anesthesia education today well has Mike mentioned earlier, they're all going to be at the doctoral level by 25, graduate with a doctoral degree by 25. Again, we're the first specialty in nursing to do so, to mandate it. I think that's something. I had talked with Polly Bednash that we mentioned earlier. As a matter of fact, we were at a meeting and she came up to me and said, I cannot believe that you have gone ahead, meaning the profession, and approved a mandated doctoral degree for your graduates. She says, when you were just so, seemed to be against it in all the meetings, because you know how nurses are, where you're going to have to convince us that once we make up our mind, we're on our way. And I think that certainly sums up how we are. I said, you know how we are, Polly. We've got to really look at all angles, but when we make up our mind, it's the right thing to do. And I wanted to, I thought when we were talking, I recall that in very early 90s, 91 or 92, before AACN even started, we did, the ANA did have a task force appointed to look at the possibility of a doctoral degree. So we actually were ahead of that. We decided, I was on SAP, but they decided at that time it was not the time. But then by the time AACN was pushing, we had already done some work. So that was a good thing. So we've come a long way. You know, when I became director in 1990, schools were closing all over the place. We got down to, I think, 82 or 80 programs from the 200 and some that were there. 68 programs closed for, it was just really, really bad. And again, that's behind us. I had to do with direct reimbursement and the doctor's challenge, uh, not allowing us in clinical sites in some instances. And I think one thing that there was a big, and they took action. They had a commission on nurse anesthesia education that was diverse and they had a lot of good ideas. They hired staff and actually were able to turn it around, but it got really bad. I mean, we were, I was afraid they were all gonna close before it was over. But today we're stable. I think the movement 
into universities. We saw that as a safe harbor because we were in hospitals and we were under the thumb essentially of anesthesiologists. So the movement, I was worried at the time, but I think moving into universities has really helped give us some safety. So it's changed a lot, but I think we've got a really bright future, putting out really, really smart people. And, you know, they're doing things I never dreamed of doing when I graduated from school. It's wonderful. Yeah. They are definitely smart people coming out today. I mean, the types of students that we interact with all the time just blow me away at how smart and articulate that these these folks are. I mean, you you hit the nail on the head there, Betty. Well, as as we try to kind of conclude here, um, Mike, any concluding thoughts you want to kind of get across to our listeners? Your quote earlier, Jeremy, I think bears repeating. I wish I could remember the original source, but those who fail to learn from the past are condemned to repeat it. And so we have a rich history and I would strongly encourage people to look back on what they had in their professional uh, issues content in school, the imaging uh, or imagining in time series in the, the journal is a great source of some of that historic information. And uh, on a lighter note, I would say when I was first trained as a COA reviewer by the late Dr. Uh, Norman Wolford, one of his takeaway points for us was you'll go on some visits where you may want to have a cab waiting outside after you give your exit report. (laughs) And I, I, I filed that away. And sure enough, I was on a visit like that before I was on the council, and I asked the admin for the school, I'll please have a cab waiting. It was before, you know, rideshare. <laughs> and so we, we, we did our report, and as we were leaving, I was fully expecting to get into a cab, and there was no cab. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. She had been directed by the uh, program administrator no cab, we'll take them to the airport. And fortunately, they didn't drive us off a cliff. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, that's right. That's right. Well, Mike, to your point a minute ago, I I think that a lot of people, Winston Churchill said that, but I don't think that he was the original person, if I remember right. So, but I, I think he used that from someone else. So, hey, Betty, any concluding thoughts? No, not at all. I really thank you for this opportunity and hope that people in enjoy some of the history. We certainly enjoyed looking at what was there and all the evidence of our great people that preceded us. Yeah. Well, you guys are both two great leaders in this industry and our listeners, um, I'm sure will be thrilled to hear your voice in this regard. And this is something that will be out there forever to kind of memorialize where we came from in this industry. So Sharon, you want to add anything else? I think that's a wrap, Jeremy. Okay. Well, we want to thank you both for being with us today, Mike and Betty. Appreciate you taking the time and putting the effort into this. Be, uh, you know, I think, is this both your first podcast? Yes. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, welcome. We break you in. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> well, you. we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. 
If you like our show and want to know more, check us out on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review, but only if it's positive. That's right. We got enough negativity out there in the world. So until next time, everybody stay safe and stay virus free. It's a wrap. Today's show was made possible by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. And thanks for your support of Beyond the Mask. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Like what you're hearing? Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.